Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 279. I had a conversation with Vince DiPerzio, and he is a documentary filmmaker, writer, producer, director. You've definitely heard of at least one, if not many, of his his shows, whether they be TV or film, The Last Days of Kennedy and King, The Big Question, Truth in Terms of Beauty, People of Earth, uh, Karaoke Fever, uh, Kim Kardashian West, The Justice Project, The Aaron Hernandez Uncovered, Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence, Inside Homicide, Women of Homicide, The Kennedy Detail, Bomb Patrol Afghanistan. I mean, the list goes on and hate.com. I'm reading off of his IMDb right now. I mean, it's extraordinary. The Cocaine War Lost in Bolivia, Five American Kids, Five American Handguns. Such a humongous body of work. Uh, We had a really fantastic conversation, uh, how he tells a story. Uh, We talked a little bit about what Kim Kardashian West is up to with the Justice Project. We discussed being in the zeitgeist and understanding what's going on around to be able to tell a story. I'm always fascinated by documentarians because, well, firstly, because I feel like there's a kinship, right? I mean, it's what I do as well on some level with the podcast. But any, I'm always drawn to people who want to tell the stories of others, the, the story holders, the storytellers. I think historically, those are very important people in a society and telling of the oral tradition. I mean, this is obviously a visual medium, uh, film and television, uh, but the idea of the oral tradition being passed down through generations, this is the modern take on that, right? And if we don't record these stories and we don't shine lights on these on these places they will be lost and will have learned nothing so to me it's really important that that folks that are drawn to the documentary body of work exist it's they are they are the keepers of the flame if you will okay so what's new in the usual nothing it's the same stuff social media is hey human podcast on instagram and facebook you can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. You can find the links page on heyhumanpodcast.com, which has information about every guest I've ever had. Definitely check that out. So much information. You could spend hours digging into deep dives on everyone. And I have a lot of fun curating that. So check that out for sure. You'll also see a merch page at heyhumanpodcast.com. I think it's under store, actually, where you can get t-shirts or hats or pen cases, whatever, to help support Hey Human and keep it ad-free. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, You can join the mailing list. I only send out an email every, I don't know, four to six months. You can do that at susanruth.com and sign up right there. That you can also find out more about me and what I do. There's also interviews on susanruth.com where I'm being interviewed, so tables turned. So check all that out. And I think that's all there is to it. If you're into music, find me on iTunes or Spotify or whatever under Susan Ruth because I have lots of music out there in the world. 
Okay, that's it. Let's get into the show. I'm excited for you to hear this and for you to dig into Vince's body of work for sure. So after you hear this episode, go to your Netflixes and your Amazons and and such and and find his films and his television shows and watch them because they're quite good. All right, enough, enough of me talking. Let's get into it. Here we go. How's it going? Oh, I like your artwork. The cat and the dog. Those are great. Yeah, I went, I went uh, you know, I just moved into the place and I decided to go full Gertrude Stein, Paris, 1920, you know, I love just it. loaded it up with art. I love it. I mean, I, that's, I don't have enough wall space for all the art. I, uh, yeah, I have the one box that's filled with all the stuff that is needs to get framed. Also, you know, there's the never ending. Oh, yeah. Half the stuff I have, you know, I'm a, I collect outsider art. So half of it's still in the garage. I, I'll never be able to get fitted in this place, this new place. Yeah. Well, Vince DePersio, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah. Um, you, I, I spent the last uh, couple of weeks absorbing a lot of your work. And I personally found it extraordinary. Uh, it speaks to me on a lot of the levels that of the work I'm trying to do, which the human stuff, the the forgiveness stuff, uh, social justice, criminal justice, all of that. Yeah, I've been lucky, you know, to, to wind up on a lot of shows that meant something. Yeah. Well, let's start with you. Where did you come from? Philly. I was born in Philly, a tough little neighborhood in between two other neighborhoods. Uh, you would, I mean, if you were going to compare it to something, it would be like the lanes in Limerick. I mean, my street was maybe eight feet wide. It was so narrow that uh, to park on the street, you had to park half on the sidewalk. The house I grew up in was uh, 10 feet wide, 16 feet deep. The bathroom was on stolen wooden pallets in the, in the uh, basement floor. So it was a pretty rough start. Close family, close neighborhood or? A big extended Italian family. My family was dysfunctional squared. Was there a sense that the neighborhood was on shaky ground for you as a kid or was for you, you were just a kid playing? No, when I was a kid, it was going full tilt boogie, the neighborhood. You know, it was it was one of those neighborhoods like you see in Philly and Baltimore and in New York when you get out of Manhattan, you used to you used to see red brick neighborhood where literally every other block had a factory, like a cardboard box factory or a burlap bag factory or a coffin factory. And then on the other corners, there were bars or churches. <laughs> you pray to God in one way or another, I suppose. Exactly. But, you know, I, everybody was working. Everybody was making a living. But, you know, the, the, the men were miserable. They work in a factory all day long, come home. They'd, they'd stop at the bar before they went to work and get a couple of shots, come home, grab a couple of shots. A lot of domestic violence, a lot of like craziness. And it didn't take me long to realize I wanted to get out of the neighborhood. And then like Bruce Springsteen, I heard the animal song. We got to get out of this place. And I was, I was, had one foot out then as soon as I heard that song. Did you leave to go to college? How did you get out? I got drafted in the army for two years during the Vietnam war. And then when I got out, uh, I went to college in the GI bill. I went to Goddard college, which I don't know if you know about it, but it was, uh, at the time, it was the most radical college in the country. There were no grades. There were not even classrooms. There was a collection of little cottages on a hill in Vermont. 
and the classes were held in either the lounge or the kitchen. It was an amazing experience. It changed my life. Goddard changed my life. That must have been a huge difference between Vietnam War and then going to this commune-esque school. Yeah, there were only 200 kids on campus at any given time. It was a trimester system. And every third semester, you had to go away from, from school and work in whatever field you said you were striving towards. It was, it was amazing. And their philosophy was, the only thing we can teach you is to stay curious for the rest of your life. And they did. Amen to that. Yeah. That's a good message. When you were, before you got drafted, were you a part? Because I mean, you're, again, your body of work to me is, speaks to a lot of human rights and civil rights. And uh, of course, the Vietnam War, which was against certainly human rights, just, just started off. But uh, did you did you fight going or did you just go and like, I've got to get this over with and hope to God I get back? Yeah, I'd be lying if I said I wanted to go in the army. <laughs> I, I didn't, you know, I was drafted and uh, and I just in my neighborhood, you, you went, you know, you just shut up and, and did it. And did I, your childhood prepare you for that? I mean, it's something you grew up in a rough. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in Vietnam. I mean, all I've got to go on, of course, is the movies and interviews of people that survived it and the carnage that has been shown to me over movies and television. Yeah, I don't think anything can prepare any 18-year-old to just for the army on its own. You know, it's it's slightly insane, you know, taking 18-year-old kids and training them to be killers, basically. So it's it's a crazy proposition. My friend who is a Marine said they took us and they turned us into serial killers. But what they didn't do is show us how to come back from being serial killers afterward. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I actually think it's worse now. I mean, at least when I was in, they, after Vietnam, they would send you to like a holding company somewhere like in Korea or someplace where, you know, for a couple months you had light duty. There was no, you know, combat. You talked to, you know, other people who had been through it. And then they sent you home. Now these and it, and it was really hard to get a second tour to get, to volunteer for a second tour. You had to jump through burning hoops. They wanted to know why, you know, what's going on with you that you want to go back. Now they send these guys five, six tours in combat. Yeah, it's even people. Yeah, even people that have come home and think they're done get called back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's why I did bomb patrol Afghanistan. Those guys. The chief in that show, he, I think he had done five tours, three in Iraq, two in Afghanistan. When you left college, did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker or was it that your curiosity started unearthing stories of people that you felt needed to be heard? I wound up in Korea in a holding company. Uh, and there was a, a, a kid there who had from Texas who had gradu graduated from UT and was a guitar player and was kind of cool. And, you know, it was the the late 60s so music you know so we bonded and we made friends with there was a photography teacher a korean photography teacher on the uh, on the compound and so we started hanging out with him and he was such a good photographer that i fell in love and then we had the advantage that we could jump over to, to japan and the cameras were really cheap so i bought a nikon and i thought I, I, i'm gonna be a filmmaker and then i got home and i saw the movie blow up and then i was like 
I'm going to be a photographer, you know? And so I went to the community college in Philly. And as part of the photography curriculum, you had to take a filmmaking class, a documentary class. I didn't want to, I took it. And as soon as I put sound and images together, I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I read a little bit about your upbringing and in an interview that you had done. And it sounded, it sounded like a movie, honestly, just the friends being murdered and the mob and, and all of that. And I mean, I imagine through all that, you would rely on an imagination to, to keep you sane. Oh, yeah. I started reading when I, well, there was a lot of violence in the house too growing up. So my escape was the radio, you know, little transistor radio so I could put the earbud in. It was only one earbud at the time, you know, and drown out the noise, our books. And I so, so I started reading voraciously when I was maybe in sixth grade. Uh, and I've read probably a book a week, every week since. And it started to open up the world for me. And, and, and I started to see other ideas, you know, and then there was Bob Dylan and there, you know, and the things he was singing about early on. And, and I started to realize that the thoughts I had, that things weren't right in this neighborhood and that the way life was being played out was not the way it should play out. And we're kind of codified by these guys. And the things I yeah. read. Was that what draw, draws you to people like Dr. King and, and Bobby Kennedy? I watched that documentary that you did. Uh, cried several times. <laughs> so good. The Last Days of Kennedy and King. So Assassination of the Last Days of Kennedy and King. And it was quite powerful. I found it very moving. And also it it made me mad too. And it also made me very sad because... I, I look around and I think, Jesus, wait, I mean, we're yeah. little baby steps, maybe, but. Yeah, there's nobody of that caliber out there right now, that's for sure. No. You know, those guys, I interviewed Andy Young in that show, you know, and uh, and he was, you know, he was Andrew Young. He was, he was, I think he was the ambassador to someplace at the time, you know, and they said, we can give you 15 minutes with, Aunt, with Andy. So. We sat down, he had 15 minutes, he rushed off, but right before he left the door, he said, I like talking to you, I'm gonna come back. And he came back and he stayed for three hours. And over the course of that conversation, it started to dawn on me, he was like 24, 25 when they were doing it. They were, Martin was, you know, in his 20s. They were changing the world in their 20s. I mean, it, it, what they did was astonishing. That, that, that was another experience that changed my life, you know, being on the balcony with everybody who was there the day he was shot, hearing their stories. Uh, yeah. Hosea, Hosea Williams was, he really, was he was their firebrand. What they used to do, what Martin used to do was he would send Hosea into a town before he came and Hosea would start up trouble. And then Martin would come in and say, I know how to handle this. <laughs> and, and, and he was amazing. You know, he made me before he would sign a release to be in the film, he made me go with him to a homeless shelter and make sandwiches for half a day. I love that. Yeah. Something that struck me hard, actually, while I was watching the documentary is when they were describing the last 24 hours of Dr. King's life and the reminiscent to me, at least, uh, of the sharing of the meal. It reminded me of The Last Supper. 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, how often have we said people like Dr. King or, you know, all these these peacemakers who end up becoming crucified in their own way, you know, the the sacrifice for all mankind, all humankind. Um, Boy, that moment really hit me. Yeah, they were closing in on him. He knew he knew something was coming. I mean, he went back to Memphis shortly before they had a, you know, the uh, garbage workers were on strike the sanitation workers, and they had a march and he led the march and the march turned violent. And they always said, the guys that were with him always said that it was started by probably the FBI. So he wanted to go back and prove that he could have a peaceful march because at the time he was butting heads with Malcolm over, you know, is this the right philosophy or should we pick up guns? And that's why he went back. Yeah, because Farrakhan and, and Malcolm X were at least Malcolm X, while he was with Farrakhan, was were on the more violent side, obviously. And King and Congressman John Lewis and all of them with their their belief that you could achieve greatness through nonviolence against your oppressor. Uh, Congressman Lewis is one of my heroes. That was a devastating. I thought he should have been the first black president. I mean, he's one of the most amazing people I've ever met, just on so many levels. And he held that ethos about nonviolence till the last second. Mm-hmm. Well, and in the recent events that we have seen over the past four years, we have watched those tactics of taking nonviolent protest and infiltrating it with violent persons to make it seem like what it isn't. Yeah. And to rabble rouse and things like that. I actually went to uh, one of the protests I went to here in Los Angeles for the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I remember being in the crowd and everybody was peaceful. We were praying, we were, we were chanting and all this, everything was, everybody felt like one person in, in a way and for a just cause and for a purpose and everything was going along fine. And then there was this person that just sort of showed up. I remember because uh, he was wearing a, a Hawaiian shirt and he started taunting the police and started kind of trying to egg on the crowd to like move and focus the energy toward the police officers that were, I mean, it, it looked like a military force for sure, but they were just letting people do what they were doing until suddenly this feeling of angst was happening. And I thought, man, that guy does not belong here. And he doesn't feel like he, you know, you just have a sense of things. Right. right. It was, it was weird. Yeah. I spent enough time with police officers, you know, and with Homeland Security, with all those guys, FBI, those things happen. They do happen, you know, that stuff does happen. Yeah. Things turn on a dime emotion wise, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you were involved in, or you producer and writer, I think the Justice Project, were you one of the writers for that as well? I was the showrunner. Yeah. Kind the of showrunner. Yeah. How did that come to be? They called me. Kim, you know, uh, Kim was really getting invested in trying to do something about criminal justice. And she had been successful getting people out. Uh, and she had gotten the First Step Act passed. I mean, she just, she just, she gets no credit for it, but it was really her. Van, uh, Van Jones was trying to get it passed for like three years. And, uh, and Kim went into the White House and got it done in a day. And then she wanted to move into a new area. And that was, what about people that have 
done something horrible, committed maybe a capital crime when they were really young and have rehabilitated themselves. What did we do about them? So when they called me, I, I turned it down at first. I was like, I don't want to get involved with some celebrity love fest for themselves, you know? Uh, and I, I don't know if I believe that people who have, who have committed a murder should get out of prison, you know? And they said, would you talk to Kim? And they put me on the phone with Kim. And she knew so much about it. And she was so passionate that I, I agreed, you know, to go along just to, just to see if I would learn something, you know, and, and it totally changed my mind. What did you learn? I learned that, you know, I learned a lot of things. I mean, I, first of all, I learned that the criminal justice, how really crazy the criminal justice system is in this country. And it started with, you know, it started with Reagan, but Clinton was a big part of it. Uh, he was getting all this pressure. And so they passed all these mandatory minimum laws. And what mandatory minimums do is they, ju- they effectively remove the judge from the process. The judge is just a caretaker at that point, because what the prosecutors, pro- prosecutors do now is they'll go into somebody and they'll say, look, I can charge you with this. And this carries a mandatory minimum of 30 years. Or, I can ch- or you can plead to this, you know, and get like seven. And so people that are innocent sometimes will take the seven. Because once you get in front of a jury, you never know what's going to happen, you know. And, uh, and so I learned that just how I talked to a federal judge. He's in the show uh, who quit the bench because he was tired of, you know, he was appointed by Obama. He was a lifelong, you know, public defender. He got on the bench. He wanted to do some good. And he realized that his hands were tied from day one and he quit. So that there was that. But also uh, I met this professor who teaches at Georgetown. And he runs a, uh, a program and in the, in the, they have an enlightened warden in the Washington, D.C. prison, the city prison. And he went into the prison and convinced the warden to let me do, let him do uh, a full on Georgetown University program for the prisoners. Not, not making anything easier for them. All the requirements you would have to uh, fulfill if you walked in the door, you know, as a student. And. He brought us into a room with like 50 guys, and I think there were a handful of women. One of the enlightened things about it was it was one of the first programs anywhere in the country in prison where men and women were together, working together. And so there were, you know, 50 guys who all at some point in their lives, mostly when they were 14, 15, 16, had committed a murder. And they'd been in for 30 years, 40 years. They had gone through this Georgetown prison program. They had done everything possible to kind of rehabilitate themselves and make them, you know, better members of society. And to hear them stand up one after another and talk, you, it, it became undeniable by the third term. The third person who could get up and talk, I was like, yeah, you know, these guys, I would, I want these guys back in society. I, you know, they're all on fire to do something. And Absolutely. The education programs in, in prison are so important. Yeah. And then I started looking, you know, after the show, I started looking at other countries and, and to see what they do and their rates of recidivism are, you know, That's it's, right. ours. it's proven again and again and again. But unfortunately, the United States prison system isn't in the business to rehabilitate and, and send people home. It's in the business of a business. And yeah. that has to change. Yeah. Well, it's, it's politicians selling fear, you know, and, yeah. and 
and, and we now we're in this situation. Somebody uh, in the a man in the documentary, the the guy that one of the the prof- it might be that professor. He uh, he said some of the smartest people I've ever met have been behind bars for thirty years and only have an eighth grade education. Yeah, is it, the school system isn't the place. This is the brain is the place. Yeah, one of the kids that he's gotten out uh, is he's becoming a lawyer and his job is going to, and what, what Kim, Kim's long-term plan her secret long-term plan is to start a law firm of incarcerated people, people that are inside, help them get their law degree so that they can change the system from inside. I mean, well, no, they actually listen. The, how many, how many people are in jail or in prison because nobody would listen. Nobody would think this is the reaction of an action. This is, and also is incarcerating children for life is insane. Just uh, already, that's insane. Well, the Supreme Court has recently changed that. You can't do it anymore. Right. right. The, the other thing I learned was that, you know, especially that resonated with me coming from the neighborhood I came from and coming from the house I came from, was that when Dr. Howard stepped into their lives, he was possibly the first adult male who said to them, oh, that's a good idea. What do you think about this? You know, who started treating them like what they had to say was important, you know, who, who actually listened to them. And, it, and that was changing lives. Just that simple fact. Yeah, treating someone with respect and humanity does wonders for their self-esteem and their hope and their potential. Yeah. Yeah, which we know, we all know, but I, it's just convincing the people that are either pretending they, they don't know or don't care because it doesn't serve them. Well, that's the thing. We have a we have an empathy and compassion crisis in this country. You know, when I was growing up, I went to Catholic school. I'm a lapsed Catholic. You know, I have my beefs with the Catholic Church. But what they taught us, you know, was the New Testament. And, and, and the life of Jesus. And it was all about taking care of the other, taking care of people that don't have what you have, accepting people for who they are. You know, it's our responsibility to care for each other. All that stuff. Now churches, what you're hearing from churches, from pulpits are, you know, this kind of crazy right-wing conspiracy craziness, you know. And it's that, that's really hurt this country. We have a serious empathy problem. People just don't care about anybody but themselves anymore. You can see how they're reacting to this, you know, how half the country reacts to this pandemic. You know, yeah. put a mask on so you don't infect your grandmother. You know, how hard of a message is that to receive? Yeah, I'll say it a thousand times. The pain we can't touch in ourselves turns to violence outwardly. As long as we don't acknowledge our own pain, we will lash out at others. Yeah, I had a homicide detective t- tell me one time that what gets people killed is you you run across someone who's never gotten, you know, that kind of attaboy, pat on the shoulder, and, in, and you insult them. And, and that instant rage is, is what gets people killed. Yeah, it's just bubbling under the surface. Yeah. As long as we treat our children and our animals uh, poorly we will be a society that has no hope unfortunately yep. it's such a bummer it's a fucking <laughs> bummer 
<laughs> it is, it, it, I mean, it is a bummer and it's hard to maintain, you know, a healthy attitude in the face of this kind of new media onslaught that just works to divide us and feeds both sides only what they want to hear. And, you know, there's something happening right now with Andrew Cuomo, right? Yeah. I have no problem saying I'm a lifelong radical Democrat. I have no problem saying he should be investigated. And if he did, of course, we women yeah. said, you know, he should be yeah. removed from office. And, and if this nursing home thing is true, you know, throw him in jail. I have no problem saying that, but you can't say that across party lines anymore. You can't get a Republican to say, oh, half a million deaths might be, it might be Donald Trump's fault. You know, when the Capitol riot happened on January 6th, I posted on my Facebook page a photograph of what those steps looked like during the Black Lives Matter protest. You know, armed phalanxes of police, helmets, riot gear, automatic weapons for a peaceful protest. And then there's an armed insurrection and there's four guys trying to stop it, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I think too, um, people know that on the other side, they will hold an accountability. There will be, there will be questions asked and they will pursue it. And so they're happy to see that morality exist without yeah. the participation themselves. Yeah. Al Franken, you know, we, that's a great example. Jettisoned Al Franken in a heartbeat, you know, for something that was really kind of silly, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah. You look at it in the face of other things that have happened since, or, yeah. You know, things that other people have said or done or what Giuliani did on camera in the Borat movie, you know. And nobody cared. I know. Yeah. yeah. Or at least nobody on his side cared. It is. It's mind boggling. Um, when it's you did. Do we do we go that way or do we hold the line? You know what I mean? I'd say we hold the line and we keep we push back always to the. When both in that documentary, you did both Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King, they both had a sense that their days were numbered because yeah. it's very hard to, to hold the line and to say, this isn't okay. And we got to fight. We have to stand up for each other because the people in power that don't want that, who actively try to suppress those voices, we're seeing that like crazy now yeah. that, that, that it is a risk of life and limb, but some things are certainly worth dying for. Yeah. And I understand how Trump got elected the first time. In fact, I knew. So do I. Yeah. I everybody yeah. I knew nuts saying this guy's going to be president. First time I heard him speak. Because I came from the neighborhoods that he was speaking to. The neighborhoods that have been left behind, no matter who was in the White House, Democrat or Republican, for 50 years. Mm -hmm. He didn't mean anything he said. But he was mm -hmm. talking to people, at least. At least he talked to them. And that's why they voted for him the first time. It gets harder to justify it the second time, the second vote, after you got a good, an adult portion of what he was like. Right. Then his true colors were shown. Yeah. But, but I agree that people want to be heard. We have an economic problem in this country that is going to create more and more division. You know, buy another bomber or make sure that, you know, the kids on your street aren't starving to death. Yeah. It, in my mind, it all stems to 
America's original sin, slavery. You know, it's like, it's the kind of anger that people, you know, we've all been in relationships where, you know, we've done something bad in the relationship. And what makes us more angry than anything else is getting called on it, you know, having to face it. And I think that politicians over the last 50 years have been brilliant in this country at rubbing America's nose in the fact that, you know, if we don't, that we have to face this original sin or we should never face it. Those are, that's the divide, you know, and half the country now feels like, yeah, it's time we finally did something about this. And the other half is like, no, you know. That will forever confuse me. I will forever be mystified by human beings that don't look at fellow human beings and have, as you say, have empathy. It makes no sense to me. It does. It makes, I interviewed a um, grand dragon in the clan and he said something that really struck me. He's like, well, you know, little kids are little kids. It doesn't matter what color they are. You just, you, you gotta be good to little kids. I'm like, at what age do you get to be racist toward someone? Like, when is it okay for you to hate someone? At what it was that bar mitzvah, you know, like, what the fuck? What does that even mean? It's, bizarre i don't i don't get humans at all which is why i do this show really it's probably why you make films on some level to try and understand human beings yeah to try and understand and to also to just give people a chance to channel through me to 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 speak for once you know i mean i i get a lot of kudos because of the quality of my interviews you know and i and i laugh when people pat me on the back because my interviews are really simple. Mostly what I do is listen. You know, nobody listens to anybody anymore. And so three questions in usually, I mean, I always prepare for the interview and I write 25 questions and I wind up asking three or four because three or four questions in, they realize that I'm really there to listen and I really want to hear their story. And that I don't care who it is, if, if, you know, William Butler and his, you know, a white supremacy compound or, you know, one of Dr. King's people or somebody who just lost a kid or, you know, they want to tell their story. And, and just the simple fact of, you know, I'm teaching a class right now at the San Francisco film school. And that's the first thing I tell everybody is like, it's not about you. It's about them. Our job is to listen. That was my argument for interviewing the grand dragon because I got a lot of pushback around me for that saying, you know, how could you give him a voice? I've talked about this on the show before, but if we ignore that voice, we are doomed yeah. because we learn a lot from that voice. And that voice can learn a lot from us. Yeah. That too as well. Yeah. You got to give space so that they, it does. I think people have room for growth and change, but like you said, even our, our own shadows need to be heard. So the people who are most dangerous are the ones that are constantly shoving down their emotions because even the darkest parts of ourselves need to be acknowledged and heard else that rage just turns into, as you say, an inferno. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the big question. Uh, forgiveness is fascinating to me. I, I'm a big fan of the topic and I grew up in a stressful house and forgiveness has been, you know, uh, something that plays around my mind for forever. 
And you say you grew up in a, an intense family situation. And of course your neighborhood was intense. Is that what drew you to the concept of forgiveness? Did you find it for yourself? Because I mean, that, that was a big, that was a big documentary really that, that touching on all those points. You know, I carried a lot of rage for a long time over my childhood and, and the, the army and missing out on the best part of the sixties, not getting to see the grateful dead live in golden gate park, you know? And when I was approached to do that, you know, I'm, I'm Italian and my background is Southern Italian Calabria, you know, where forgiveness is you don't twist the knife after you stick it in, you know? And, and so I took it because once again, I, I wasn't sure how I felt about it, you know? And it was really an eye-opening experience. I remember, you know, I don't think, I'm not even sure if it made the film. We stood on a corner in Ventura, me and a, a cameraman, and we asked people about if, they, if there were circumstances in which they could forgive or not forgive. And half the people wouldn't talk to us, <laughs> but the, the, the majority of the people who did said there were things they, they could never forgive. It really, really struck me, you know. And then we went out and talked to all these people that had the most horrible things happen to them. And they, and they found it in their hearts. The Hopis, we were the first people to film on that sacred uh, mesa where they are in 40 years, 45 years, I think. We were the first camera crew that were allowed in. Uh, and they were really hinky about us coming. And they, uh, we went up on this mesa and they were having a ceremony where all the all the men were underground in these kivas. They, the Hopis live on a, a seasonal cycle where every season they have a ceremony. And as you go into spring, they go into these underground kivas for a couple of weeks and they chant and they do the sweat lives and do all that stuff. And they stay underground and they plant seeds and the seeds sprout and the seeds sprout, they come out, you know. And so they let a couple of men out to deal with us. and. But they were very standoffish. And we sat down and the first guy got in a chair and I just asked him a couple simple questions. You know, what do you see as like our biggest, the worst thing we've done to you and why? Uh, and how do you feel about it? And after that, and I was only allowed to talk to one person. That was the deal. You can come up here. We're going to give you a spokesperson. You can only talk to that person. Every man in there demanded to sit in the chair and talk after that first person. And because they all wanted to talk about the idea of forgiveness and how it's really basic, you know, so they say in 12 step programs, you know, that uh, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Yes. And that was basically their philosophy. You know, it was, it was really eye opening. The only person in the show who really felt like there were things you shouldn't forgive was a woman who took care of kids that had been sexually abused. Because, uh, because the mavens of forgiveness, part of it is reconciliation. You know, that's what happened in Tutu in South Africa. And she was like, I, I, I'm never gonna put a kid who was molested in a room with the person who molested them and say, you have to forgive. Yeah, I get that. I, I mean, these past few years has really tested my empathy bone. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, 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 two hours on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And I mean, for, I have plenty of friends and family members who have been molested and, and or raped. And it is, uh, it's, it, I think it's, it's akin to soul murder, really. Yeah. Yeah. Stealing innocence. Yeah. Yeah. I think it probably would have been easier for a lot of the people I know to have been killed than to carry that their lives. Yeah. I had a yeah. therapist once say to me, we're all born princes and princesses and our parents turn us into frogs. Oh my God. Yes. That's very accurate. <laughs> Did it make you uncomfortable to win awards for this work? I mean, you seem to me as somebody who would be like, okay, yeah, that, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. I just, I just, I'm always on to the, you know, the, it's a Sisyphean process making a film. You know, you're really excited about something. You go out there and you tackle it. And then eight months, 10 months later, you're still dealing with, you're still cutting it. And, still, and already, you know, a lot of times you've moved on or you're, there's something else that's grabbing a hold of you. Uh, so the whole word thing, I mean, I, I kind of went through it because you have to, but it never really, never really meant that much. Yeah. Have you forgiven people from your past? Do you think? Yeah, I have. And I was it, and I've had to, and I've worked really hard to reconcile with people who I've heard along the way. Hmm. I'm sure you've learned that it your pain created pain in others, right? Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know. My Facebook page now is loaded with ex girlfriends <laughs> who. My perception of the relationship is that I was a complete asshole and their, their perception. And I think part of this has to do with, you know, the rose colored glasses of time is that I was a lot of fun and a great guy. But I, but I, the reason I'm on, they're on my Facebook page and we're friends is because I reached out to almost all of them and said, Hey, I just want to say something to you. You know, I may not have been at my best when we were together and, and it meant a lot. And it meant a lot for I, me too. Yeah, they say that for doctors who uh, do something wrong with their patients, that most of them would likely not be sued if they just said, I'm sorry, I was wrong, or I made a mistake. But the percentages of those who do not end up getting sued because, again, people need that, that moment. Yeah. Are you in the program? No. Okay. You mentioned the 12 steps. So. Yeah, no, but I've, I've actually sat in a bunch of different kinds of uh, 12 step groups. It's one of the things I was, it's an idea I was playing with at one time. I read, I don't know if you've ever read Susan Cheever's book, uh, John T Cheever's daughter. He was an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic, and she got into trouble with alcohol. So she wrote a book where she went around to everybody who was working with people that had addiction, all the different processes. And the one process that had the most efficacy, she found, and a lot of the researchers she talked to found was 12-step programs. There's something about sitting in a room and listening to other people who have been through what you've been through. It starts to change the chemistry in your brain. And they, they actually, now that, you know, they're doing a lot of brain mapping, they've actually seen physical proof of it. Yeah, it's probably a by proxy that then turns into an understanding of self. Yeah. Like this, this is my conduit <laughs> and this person is going to be my conduit until I am able to, to step across the threshold and, and touch it myself. 
Yeah, one of the groups I sat in with was a group of men that had battered women. And it was really amazing to, to see the reactions of the people who weren't speaking to the guy who was talking about what he did, you know, and you could just see their shoulders unclenched. You can just see stuff welling up in them that they wanted to say, you know, that they wanted to make to, to atone for. It was really interesting. I'm a big believer in those programs. Me as well. Definitely. I also am a big believer in bringing art and music to inside of prisons and in therapy groups and things like that. I think it's a way to express. It's a way to connect to the universe. And I, for lack of a better word, you know, to find the God inside of us, whether or not you believe in God, but a divinity, you know, it's an expression of divinity and it's, it's that thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I couldn't agree more. Yeah. What, what project is interesting you right now? I, it's so funny. I just signed a contract yesterday for a new project. I can't talk too much about it. it, okay. it it's my idea. It's definitely socially relevant. Uh, probably make a lot of noise, you know, so we'll see what, we'll see what happens. It's, it's early. We're in the development process, but it could be something really special. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Do you think that uh, Kennedy would ha- Bobby Kennedy would have gotten as far as he did uh, if King hadn't been assassinated? And also, do you think the landscape of America today would be completely different had Bobby Kennedy been president? Yeah, I'm absolutely convinced. You know, the murder of his brother, and then the the guys from the men and women from Dr. King's inner circle, what they said was that King always said to them, if anything happens to me, go to Bobby. I want you to go to Bobby because Bobby has been through it. There's something there in Bobby. And this is a guy who early on in Kennedy's uh, presidency called the leaders of black America into his office. Martin wasn't there, but uh, Harry Belafonte was there and, uh, Jose Williams is there, a bunch of other people, and said to them, basically, you got to knock this off. You're embarrassing my brother. You're not going to get anything this way. We'll take care of you, but we're going to do it on our time. Our, you know, they hated him when they left that office. And so when Dr. King said to them, you know, I want you to turn to Bobby, there a lot of them were like skeptical about that idea. And then at the funeral, Coretta cornered him in, a, in an upstairs bedroom and they all came, all the guys came in and she laid it on. She said, you're going to get us through this now. Martin always said you would help us get us through it. And then when I was looking through the footage of his funeral, there was the coffin right here. Is a, it's, it's, a, it's Martin's coffin. That's a folk art piece from a, an African-American guy uh, in Mississippi. But anyway, they said, you know, you're going to get us through this. And looking in the footage, behind the coffin, there were all the dignitaries, right? And at the funeral, they were all crowded by that. They all wanted to be in the picture by that coffin. I couldn't find Bobby. So I'm looking through hours and hours of footage. And eventually, I found Bobby way back in the crowd, way back, surrounded by Black people, his jacket over his shoulder, his sleeves rolled up, sweating profusely, walking with the crowd. And that was Bobby, you know? He, he changed. 
and the story, the story they always tell about him changing was he was, uh, after his brother was killed, he was showing up at the Senate, Senate office unshaven. A lot of times he wouldn't even take a shower. You know, they, nobody wanted to sit with him. He was just lost in space. And someone in his staff suggested that he go on a tour of Appalachia. And he, he went into a hut and oh, no, in Mississippi. He went into a hut in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And there was a little kid there. And he picked a kid up and held him. Asked, asked her if she hadn't eaten that day, and she hadn't. And he went back to Washington, hadn't done anything, worked on any legislation, anything. He went back to Washington that day and organized a food drive for those people. And that, and that was the beginning of the new Bobby. Yeah, it's interesting to think of our martyrs, what, what they've triggered, and then the, the line of martyrs that come after that. that yeah. I think Bobby had a sense that he wasn't going to live very long. I couldn't tell, you know, when I've, I've read about him, it's hard to tell if there isn't a hint of, it's not suicidal, but just a, a resignation into inevitability. Yeah, his guy said that he was, you know, there's a famous story. Uh, they were in St. Louis, I, I think, and they got uh, somebody, Schlesinger, somebody in the group, got a message that there was an assassin looking for Bobby in St. Louis. And so they took him into the basement of the hotel, loaded the limousine there and drove out. And he was like, what, what, wait, wait, what is this about? And he got out of the car and started walking. He was so pissed off. He was like, if they're going to get me, they're going to get me, but I'm not going to face the people that I'm asking to vote for me. And that was him. And there's footage of the, it's in the film of him in, in L.A., right outside Canners, uh, mobbed by people. And he's, he's laughing because someone's stealing his shoes while he's talking. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And, and he, they'd still his cufflinks and like all that kind of stuff. That footage of him in Watts with those massive crowds, you know, who no one has come along since then. They can do that. It, that. That footage reminded me of uh, the gurus, you know, in India, the, the, or the Buddhists that walk through the, the crowds and everybody wants to touch them as if it would imbibe in them the right. same feelings. Right. I wish it's sort of that thing with religion, right? Like you can, like in the Catholic religion, for example, you can talk to God, but not really to God. You have to go through the Pope, the Bishop, the priest, then, you know, it's a long telephone line. Right. Um, and so when I, my wish is when I see people who stand up for the voice of all that people realize they have that in them too. Yeah. And that one can be a lot. And no one's telling anyone that anymore. That's the thing. You know what I mean? It's, it's lost. We see, you know, right now we're facing a crisis in the country with you know, police violence, right? And I have a, a fairly controversial take on it that gets me into a lot of arguments. But it comes from, I, I sat down and I totaled how much time I've spent in a police car on these shows. And it comes out to over two years of riding, you know, next to somebody uh, who's doing this for a living. And I've come to realize something. And what I've come to realize is you would never say about a 15-year-old black kid who shoots another 15-year-old black kid that he was born evil. It wouldn't be right. 
you would say something happened in this kid's life that turned him this way, you know, that pushed him in this direction. But we say that about police officers all the time. And it's, it's not true. The truth is that we've let these neighborhoods die where there's no hope, there's no jobs, there's not even a decent grocery store on the corner. So you have generations, like we're into the fourth or fifth generation now, of fathers, for instance, who sit across the table from a little kid and know there's nothing they can do to make that kid's life better. In the neighborhood I grew up in, as rough as it was, and as brutal as the men were, they, they had something to hang on to. And what they had to hang on to was that through their sacrifice of working in a factory, our lives might be better. And it was for a lot of us. But when you take that away and you leave these places to die, and then you expect kids to grow up in these places and, you know, and somehow overcome it. Or you send a 20-year-old man or woman in a police car into that neighborhood thinking they want to do good. And after three months, they realize there's nothing they can do to change anybody's life. It's a system is stacked up, not just against the people they're looking at, but against them too. They get cynical. And then after they get cynical, they get angry. And, that, and, and we have trouble. So no amount of body cameras, no amount of special training, nothing's going to change that. The only thing that's going to change that is to get them out of the cars, into the neighborhoods, again, like they were when I grew up, and to change those, to put, you know, to make the schools work again, to give people a chance to get a job, you know, those, those kind of things. Happen. But that's long-term thinking, and that thinking, that kind of thinking doesn't get you elected to office in America. Which I don't understand. I don't understand why we are so actively working toward destroying ourselves. The common human, the quote unquote, every man with a capital E. Why are we so hell bent on our our self-destruction that we would continue to elect these people? Now, I know many uh, voting voices are suppressed. And of course, there is great activity to try and suppress even more voices, which I think is violence. I think that is an act of violence, personally. 46 states in the last week have proposed legislation to make it more difficult to vote. All Republican legislators. It's Republican. so wrong. They it's, know it's, they can't win, though. If you look at the, the history of our elections, the last Republican that won the popular vote was George Bush in his second term. But, but no Republican in 25 years has won the popular vote in the electorate, you know. In an electoral process, they know they can't win because the, the tide of the country is, is changing. We're getting browner, you know, we're getting more educated. And so the only way they can win is to suppress the vote or to keep people ignorant. And that's where, you know, I don't like to say anything bad about the dead. Uh, and no one should have to die the way Rush Limbaugh died. But he, he was one of the most destructive forces in, in, in our country's history. He started this whole ball rolling. He was the first one to start telling lies publicly, constantly, you know, to fit his agenda. That's right. It made him a very wealthy man, but he certainly, uh, you can't take it with you. And if there is some place after death where you reflect on what you have done or have been, let's hope there's been a moment of reckoning there for himself, you know? Yeah, you wonder if a guy like that ever, ever got it. I don't know. I, I, some of these people who so actively 
destroy so many lives with their lies, do they ever look in the mirror and think, another day? I think they actually believe what they're saying. You know, there's that thing, if you tell a lie often enough, you start to believe it. I think people do that with themselves. You know, these Tucker Carlson's and stuff, they... Does he believe what he's saying now because he said it so much? Or does he know, which is atrocious. Does he know how much he's lying? Yeah, no, it's his brand. You know, it's, there's a great documentary called Our Brand is Crisis. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I haven't. It, it's about James Carville. Hmm. And uh, it's, I have a strange connection to it. I was in Bolivia with the DEA uh, doing a doc hmm. with Peter Jennings. Uh, about the lunacy of the war on drugs. And while we were there, we met a guy named Gonzalo, Gonzalo Sanchez who latched on to us because he had gone to Northwestern and graduated as a film major. So he was, he was all over us. And we wound up staying at his place for a couple of days. Well, it, after we left, he ran for president of the country, right? And he was, you know, there were like 18 candidates and he was 18. And he hired James Carville's company to come in. And James Carville's company came in and they held a forum with the campesinos. And they didn't say to them, what would make your country better? What, would, what are you looking for in a president? The question they asked him was, who do you hate the most? And they hated Chile the most because Chile, there was a war way back when, and Chile cut off Bolivia's access to the ocean. And so they started, so, so the campaign, Carvel's people, started a rumor that the guy who was the front runner in the election was plotting with Chile to run a pipeline across Chile to steal all of Bolivia's natural gas. In three weeks, Gonzalo Sanchez was like at ninth place, not at 18th anymore. So they held another forum and they said, well, who do you hate second most? And they hated the military. So they, so they started a rumor that the new leader in the polls was in league with the military and he was going to, you know, lock down the country under military rule. And so Gonzalo Sanchez won the election, right? Immediately put through the pipeline to Chile and there was a bloody coup and 300 people were killed in the capital, La Paz. And at the end of the documentary, they asked James Carville, you know, what he felt about this. And he was like, we got him elected. That's our job. And that's what's wrong with, you know, American politics. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clear that the Trump campaign uh, took a dip through history to find the best ways to manipulate humanity. He's only read one but book. Yep. And he's read it a yeah. lot of times, he says, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Mein Kampf, exactly. It's crazy when your hero is a genocidal maniac. Uh, I. So is there is there hope? Do you feel like there's hope for us if if we so actively participate in our own demise? Where do we go? I'm torn. I mean, I when I you know, my wife passed away last year, and I moved up here to be near, near my son and. Uh, he graduated from UC Santa Cruz and he's got a tight knit little group and they've kind of pulled me into their group. And I, I found that there isn't like ageism amongst this group. You know, I can sit down and play the guitar with them. We can go to the farmer's market together. And, and they, they don't, 
They don't see any of this. You know, they they don't see race anymore. I hate to say that, but they understand what happened with Black America. They know their history. They know the country's original sins. They know where we need to go. They know that socialism, democratic socialism is a good thing. You know, they know the comparison between our countries and other countries. So there's that on the one hand. On the other hand, they have no faith in our political system, our electoral process. They all voted for, for Biden because they wanted to see Trump go away, but they didn't believe they were going to get much better from him. You know? That's right. And that's the scary. And, and looking at him now, sorry, looking at him now, I'm not, I don't, I'm not expecting much from him either. You know? Oh, yeah. I don't think really any of us were, but as you say, those of us who did vote for Biden did so out of an obligation to humanity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like he's a decent human being, but I don't think, I don't right. think the people who voted for Trump are going to feel any better about Biden, you know? And I, I heard somebody on the radio the other day talking about the trend in politics and that what they were saying was the next strong man who comes along is going to be a woman in this country. And, and one thing Trump did was blow away the myth that if women ran the, ran the world, it would be better. He, he, he had no trouble finding really despicable women. Oh, my God. My, my greatest fear is that he laid the groundwork for somebody much smarter than he, which isn't saying a lot, uh, much smarter than he to, to step in. Well, that's what I think. That, that's, to me, in my mind, that was partly the failure of Obama, who I loved and who I voted for twice, but who I, go, I don't believe was a brilliant president. And, and what's happening now with Biden? Because in a way, Obama led to Trump. And Biden, you know, by not addressing these concerns, is he's going to lay the groundwork for exactly what you said, somebody worse to come along. The next person that comes along is going to be worse. I agree. I'll see you in the firing line. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I moved to Santa Cruz, where everybody agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Santa Cruz. It's a great little town. Yeah, it's, it's great. The, just on the little boardwalk and there's a, the gondola thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. I, went, I took a drive with a best friend in college. We drove down the coast from Bellingham, Washington and went to Santa Cruz. I love Bellingham. I love Washington. I, I lived for 14 months a couple years ago in Seattle. I love the Pacific Northwest. Something magical. Yeah. It's magical. Yeah. It's where all the gnomes and fairies in the woods live. That's why. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Seattle. I went to college in Bellingham at Western. So. It's a good school. Do how many? You, yeah, you have two kids. You said or one? Just, just one. One. Yeah. Does uh, does he have hope for the future? He sees his best hope taking care of himself. <laughs> That's what he sees his his best hope doing no harm, taking care of himself. He he doesn't. He's not looking for anybody to help him out. He doesn't think that's coming. You know. What do you think Bobby Kennedy could have done had he become president to shift things? I think he could have built on what LBJ was forced to do, you know, with civil rights and the Voting Rights Act. I like your do no harm. I think that's a, or your son's concept of do no harm. Uh, I hope that we learn how to embody that. 
I really want, I really want to have hope. I do. I really want to. And every time I talk to anyone, whether it's on the show or out in the world, um, I try and cling to that. I know there's more good in the world. I know there is. Yeah. I, look, I, I think this past summer was illustrative of what, what could happen. You know, black people and white people on the street together, marching together. I think, you know, George Floyd was a turning point, I think, in this country. There was something about, we've heard about it, we, you know, we, it, we've heard about it since. But there was something about watching that man kill another man on video while people were begging him to stop that changed a lot of minds. And I think that it changed enough minds to get Biden elected, which was something, you know, because like you said, and I felt the same way, we were all holding our nose and voting, but we did, you know, and I think that it illustrated where the politics of the last four years were leading us. And I think that that's the hope. The hope is with kids. You know, yeah. Really quick, last question I want to ask you is about the UFO documentary. The <laughs> the uh, the Earth people, <laughs> the people of Earth. Is it people yeah. of Earth? Yeah. yeah, the people of Earth documentary. I watched that. I actually watched that last night before I went to bed, which gave me very weird dreams. Um, <laughs> what made you drawn into that? I I'm trying to remember what the genesis of it was. I was hanging at Bionics. Uh, not the, the Aroma Coffee House, you know, with all my boys. I love it. Yes, I love that place. And there was an old guy in there uh, that I used to call the Delhi Lama because he was, you know, an old Jewish guy who was kind of a philosopher. And he had a friend who was the kind of, she was the blonde in that show, who used to stop by and she was oh, babbling. And then the guy Walter would come a lot. And Walter would, and I was just like, there's something about this I want to get into. And so... I jumped in full tilt boogie and man, I came away with a lot of like mixed emotions about it because whatever that cosmology is, it's shared by a lot of people. One, one of the most amazing incidents was we were at Aroma and one of the girls in the film, one of the women in the film had a book and what she would do is you would talk about your abduction and she would sketch your abductor. Right. And so she was drawing one. And a woman, like six tables away, well-dressed, 22-year-old hipster, came rushing up to the table, looked over her shoulder, looked at us and said, you guys know about the reptilians too. And before I could say one other word, she rushed out of the place. And what blew my mind was that she knew exactly what this being was that was being drawn, you know? And, uh, and it just, there's something... There's a famous book by a New York Times reporter uh, who was sent to cover a conference at, uh, at Harvard. There, there was a Harvard psychologist. I don't know if he's still there, but he's, he, he, he caused a big ruckus by switching his practice. He was a psychologist to completely deprogramming people who claimed they were abducted. So the Times sent this reporter up there and he came away and he wrote in his book, you know, I, I never saw any empirical evidence. You know, no one ever produced anything. But I'm convinced that what these people say they witnessed or has happened to them, they believe. That's as much as I'm willing to say, but they believe what they're saying. And that's how I felt at the end of it. Yeah, when I, I had an experience, it wasn't for me, though. I was dating a guy at the time and 
I woke up in the middle of the night and I saw this very, 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 very tall, slender, female feeling figure, very like white, illuminescent. And then I turned and there was a very tiny sort of short, fat, grayish looking and scared the living shit out of me. And I'm like, am I awake? Am I asleep? And I was trying to wake up my boyfriend and he wouldn't wake up. And then I just, I just fell back asleep. I don't even remember. It was like, I was unconscious again. And that experience, I mean, I could still picture all of it. And then later, as I grew older, I started hearing about these people's experiences and they described the same thing that like long female one with the little, I was like, what the fuck? It's very disconcerting. I can't tell you, half a dozen friends, really close friends from my inner circle said, came to me and said, I've never said this to anybody before, but I got to tell you what happened to me. So something's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Vince, thank you. What's the best way for people to find you? I know IMDB is probably, it has all your info. Is there, do you have a website as well? No. No, it's okay, so. Hubris on my part, but I don't have one. Okay, well, that's why the IMDb will at least lead people in the direction of how to find the films. And I'll put links to things as well. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Send me a link when you're done, too. Oh, I will. Absolutely. And uh, and uh, keep doing what you do. I'm glad you're on the planet. And you're, you know, again, one of those people that are shining light in places where we need, where we need it, you know? Yeah, it's good to have a purpose. <laughs> It is good to have a purpose. All right, you take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Bye. Bye.